Thanks for listening to The Rebuild, a Seattle Seahawks podcast with me, Rob Statham. This week, I was joined by Jeff Simmons to look ahead to the draft and share some thoughts on what we hope and expect from the Seahawks later this month. Jeff, let's just get straight into it and let's propose a scenario and a talking point as to what might happen with uh, with this number nine pick, first of all. Let's assume that the top pass rushers are gone and there's kind of four that are generally regarded as top 10 picks. We've got Aiden Hutchinson, Travon Walker, Kayvon Thibodeau and Jermaine Johnson. Let's assume that they're, they're gone. Yeah. Let's also assume that two offensive linemen at least are gone, Evan Neal and, and Ikea Kwanu. Let's just say that they're not going to be there. And then there's going to be sort of two more picks before the Seahawks are on the clock. Let's say that Garrett Wilson is one of those picks just because there's a bit of buzz there. And then for the eighth name, I'm not even going to mention an eighth name because I want to pitch something to you and sort of get your thoughts. And I don't want to remove everybody from the conversation. They're not going to take Garrett Wilson, so it's okay to put him in. What are you wanting the Seahawks to do if that is the, the situation that they find themselves in when they're on the clock at number nine? Uh, I think this is the scenario that is going to end up happening, and I think this is where they're going to have to make a decision to pivot because I think if four, it could be four off. I think four pass rushers are going to go before their pick, and I think two, maybe three offensive linemen, depending on what Carolina does at six, if they stay there. So to answer your question, I think they are going to have to pivot, and if I were them, I would want them to take one of the corners, Sauce Gardner or Derek Stingley, because I think that's where the value is at that spot. They have painted themselves into a bit of a corner by not hedging the offensive tackle position a little better. But for me, I think the value at that spot, I think both those players have big ceilings in this draft. And I think there's a case that Gardner and Stingley could be two of the top five prospects in the draft entirely. So for me, if that scenario unfolds and you can't get a pass rusher, you can't get one of those top two tackles, I would go with the best corner. That's where I think the value is. Interesting. I mean, I think that um, clearly there is some we're talking about two really talented players and I guess sort of the, as the time has gone on, Jeff, I think when we first started talking about the post Russell Wilson era, I think I certainly hoped that there would be a pass rusher there at number nine. I think you maybe felt the same way. It's interesting, isn't it? That that has completely changed. Is that how different would it be to sort of launch a new era with a highly rated cornerback compared to a high rated defensive end. It's not ideal because uh, you've talked about this more than anyone. And we've talked about this. One of the benefits of really trading Russell Wilson and getting these draft picks was to rebuild the trenches of the team. So cornerback is a need. There's a need for a number one corner. And I think, but there's also a need for a pass rusher. There's also a need for a left tackle. There's also a need for a quarterback in the future. And I think just we've talked about for so long for the Seahawks to play they want to play. It's never really made sense that they just haven't properly built up the offensive line and they haven't properly had that number one pass where they've been cycling through pass rushers. And I remember we had a conversation last year where we said like a year later, this group's going to look problematic because they had scotch taped so many of their roster together. And now if you take a cornerback, it doesn't help address any of those two trench areas that they really need, but you have to look at this draft in context and they have seven premium picks in the next two years. So I think you have to go with what the board is telling you. And the problem the Seahawks have made so many times, I heard you've talked about this. I heard Matt Miller talk about this is 
they go into a draft and they they, they hyper focus on a position. And this is what happened with LJ Collier. They hyper focus. They need to get an edge rusher, and th- this year that would be left tackle. And to me, if you take the third or fourth left tackle instead of like the best corner who has like an all-pro potential, to me that's continuing similar paths. I know it's not ideal. I would like them ideally ad- address the trenches and use these next two drafts or make that a strength of this roster. But if those four pass rushers are gone, the two tackles are gone. I think you have to pivot, and I think you have to do it. And I, I know you've talked about this, but I know I'm rambling here, but Seahawks have a tendency to, when they bring in a new, like a new big hire, a new like offseason move, it was happened with Tom Cable, it happened with Brian Schoenheimer, and Sean Desai was their big hire of the offseason. I know Clint Hurt got promoted. He's a defensive back coach. He's worked with safeties. He's worked with defensive backs. And they didn't pay DJ Reed, which to me indicated that they want their corners to be a little different in this defense. So that's where picking a corner in the top 10 to me would make a little bit of sense. If they're going to ask them to play more man and they didn't want to pay DJ Reed because they're worried that maybe he won't be as valuable if you transition out of how you are playing a little bit, then having that number one true corner in a league that's shifting more towards passing, to me, there's a lot of value in that. I'd be very comfortable with Source Gardner or Derek Stingley. I think that Derek Stingley is the better player personally. Yeah, um, I know sort of the consensus is that Source Gardner is better, I think, in, in the media. But I still think that Derek Stingley, I, I don't really want to blame him too much for the injuries. Uh, you know, Aidan Hutchinson had a really serious injury a year ago. No one ever talks about that. Everybody talks about the fact that Derek Stingley's had a few injuries. Um, and also, I think the fact that LSU just completely collapsed as their head, you know, head coach was shall we say, busy doing other things. Um, then maybe took his eye slightly off the ball. Yeah. I, th- I think that maybe that played into it a little bit. And then, of course, from Derek Stingley's point of view, he was kind of like left on the boat as all of the other top players departed for the NFL. You know, the Jamar Chases, the Joe Burrows, all of the stars that left. And he was left with this shell of a team. So I'm not really going to hold the last two years against him. I think Derek Stingley is still... He may even be the most talented player in this draft. So I'd be completely happy with him at number nine. I think you've touched on it, though, Jeff, in what I was going to come on to next. I was going to ask you what what your sort of worst case scenario would be. And I think you've already touched on it a little bit here. And that is that they will try to fill holes. And look, for me, the Seahawks go into off-seasons trying to piece together a puzzle rather than build. They've done that for too long. And... You know, I think someone like Austin Blythe, for example, should be a hedge. My fear is that they think, well, that's center sorted. And it's not really. You know, yeah. it's it's a one-year, $4 million contract for a guy who may, may or may not be any good. You may or may not have to replace him during the season. You possibly slash probably will have to replace him in 12 months' time or re-sign him and, you know, look at the Will Disney contract. They'll probably end up giving him $10 million a year. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's... That's not a solution. That's just scotch tape again. And, and and then they go into a draft and they go, okay, well, we've got this hole and this hole. We can fill that hole there. We can fill that hole there. And what I'd rather than do, Jeff, is just go, who's the best player available? You know, just take the best player, especially at a time like this. And I'm not really listening to all. I mean, the media ask anybody associated with the Seahawks whether this is a rebuild or not. And every player has been coached to say exactly the same thing, that it's not. We all know that it is. I just hope they treat it as it is, Jeff, you know, and just go, look, this is what we have, but we're not going to be held to ransom on drafting a tackle at number nine just because we don't have one at the moment. We're going to 
do what's best for our team. And I'm really hoping that they do that and don't fall into the trap of thinking, let's get out of this draft with almost a complete roster and then do what we've done in the previous years, which is scramble around trying to fill all the remaining holes between now and training camp. Yeah, you were, again, we and you are not the best podcast material, but I could be more aligned with you there. To me, the way they're talking worries me a little bit, just sometimes how they talk about the roster. I don't know if that's just PR, but to me, if I look at this roster, I see a team that doesn't have a left tackle. They don't have a quarterback. They don't have that premier pass rusher. Maybe Daryl Taylor turns into that, but after one year of playing, you can't say that at this point. And they don't have a number one corner. And those are probably the four most premium positions in the whole league of how you build a team. So you could say you're rebuilding, retooling, whatever. Your core players right now, if you're looking at like who are your building blocks going forward, it's probably Daryl Taylor, DK Metcalf. And then your next two best players are probably Quandre Diggs and Tyler Lockett, who are both close to 30 years old. So if I'm them, I go into this draft thinking, okay, we need to rebuild the core of our team. Russell and Bobby are no longer here. We need building block players. We don't need to fill specific needs. We need players we can build around. So to me, it's all important about getting value. And to me, if they go in, this left tackle thing is what really concerns me. And then, and you you wrote about this guy the other day, Trevor Penning. And I actually don't mind Trevor Penning as a prospect. If you're drafting like 15, 16, I saw like someone had him like 21st in their top 50 rankings. That's someone I respect. I can't remember who I was reading. But Trevor Penning, to me, is not a building block player. I think he would make a lot of sense if you're a team like Baltimore or you're a team like the LA Chargers, where you have your core in place, you need a complementary right tackle to help your run game. But to me, the Seahawks need building blocks. And if you go into this draft and you hyper-focus, we have to get a left tackle, and if all the other left tackles are gone, and you say, okay, we take Trevor Penning over Sauce Gardner or over Derek Stingley, to me, that would be a glaring mistake because – Again, I don't mind Trevor Penning as a prospect. There's a lot there. You've talked about how athletic he is, his profile. I heard Ray Roberts talking about how he really likes him, but Ray Roberts said the same thing. Ray Roberts said he wouldn't draft until the end of the first round. So to me, it's about value. The draft is a marketplace. Like You can get Trevor Penning if you trade down, and you might not this year because of all the teams with tackles, but Zion Johnson's a guy you've talked about a lot. I really like him as a prospect. So if you're going to take someone like that, move down a bit, get more picks. But to me, I want to see them pick someone at nine. I don't want to see them hyper-focus on one position when, as I said, they have four or five premier needs. And they're at the point right now, again, seven premier picks and could be more in the next two drafts in the first and second round. They're going to need to use those positions to rebuild their core. So to me, do not reach for one position. If you do, it's really – like I'm sort of in a wait-and-see mode with this front office. I want to see how they try to build this thing up again because, as you said, it's a lot easier to build than to fill holes. But – if they go in and try to fill a hole with this top 10 pick for a guy who who isn't a top 10 prospect, again, Penning is fine. There's nothing wrong with him. But to me, it's bad value and would be more evidence that they don't have a plan here and they just cut corners as they go. And to me, you have to start building sustainable groups. And you've talked with the centers a lot in this draft. To me, like an ideal sense, you come out of this draft with your long-term, with two long-term offensive lines. I think this, I, I mean, I agree every, with everything you say as well. And and you're right. It probably doesn't make for the most entertaining podcast. But then, you know, I, I also think that it's just correct. It's the it's the kind of the conversation that I think as Seahawks fans and within the media, it, it needs to be had a little bit. I think we've kind of gone down a trap the last couple of weeks of people just sort of talking about, well, they need a tackle, therefore tackle. They need a quarterback, therefore Malik Willis or whatever. 
And I think really we need to sort of actually talk about, well, who is actually there? Who are we actually talking about here? Because I'm, a, I'm completely with you. You get into this weird position where I really like Trevor Penning as an idea for certain teams. And I don't think, I don't, I don't dislike Trevor Penning as a prospect, but I don't want the Seals to draft him in any way, shape or form. It's not the kind of player that they need to take right now. A guy who's probably going to start right tackle, who might have to move in and play right guard. And someone like the Ravens can completely justify it from where they are. The Seahawks can't. I don't want us to, to launch a new era of a build with what is essentially what, what I've been kind of referring to as a, a more athletic, explosive version of James Carpenter, which is kind of what you, you are going to have here. And I think there's a very real prospect that they will do that, Jeff, because they haven't signed, they've not done anything at tackle. You know, they've just kind of willingly left the tackle position open. And yes, Dwayne Brown and Brandon Shell are still free agents, but by not doing anything, it does make you think, well, they're going to have to tackle at some point. And I wrote about this this week, whether it's nine, whether it's after a trade down, whether it's at 40 or 41, a tackle is going to end up in Seattle. And it's whether or not it's penning or somebody like that early, or whether it's an Abraham Lucas or somebody in the middle rounds that they, they've really got their eye on. We will find out within less than two weeks. But Penning, the thing with Penning is, and, I, and I've got an article coming out about this tomorrow, is that if you actually look, and I, and I do think the Seahawks pay a lot of attention to this, Jeff, if you look at what has worked at tackle in the NFL over the last sort of five, six, seven years, it is essentially offensive linemen who are explosive testers who run really well in the 40. You know, they are the indicators really that what has happened, and that's what Trevor Penning is. And yet you watch his tape. I mean, his, somebody posted a really great Twitter video a couple of days ago of just it was just a highlight reel of Trevor Penning getting beat at the senior bowl, then cheap shotting the I defender right after he'd been beaten. And that really he to me he went to Mobile to prove a point that he was really tough. And I think when you do it after you're getting beat like that, one you look like you're trying too hard to prove that. And it kind of you kind of give a vibe of a phony tough guy. I don't think Jason Kelsey ever needs to pretend that he's a tough guy, for example, or Cam Chancellor. He didn't need to prove anything. He felt like Trevor Penning was trying to prove something. But if you keep getting beat, no one's going to care how tough you are. If If you're lying on somebody or shoving them over after they've sat your quarterback, everyone's just going to go get that guy off the field. So I, I don't really want to go down that road and take on that experiment. But you also touch on another important point there, Jeff, is the Seahawks don't have long-term answers at premium positions. And I look at this draft and I go, well, how do you, you know, if the pass rushes are gone and if there isn't a premium left tackle, then it really only leaves cornerback. And if you aren't willing to take one at number nine, your only choice is to trade down and to just go, we're just going to take some good players. And, and I'm fine with that. If they want to do that, if they want to trade down into the teams and go, we'll take a Zion Johnson because we believe he's going to be an exceptional guard who will play for 10 years at a height, you know, and be essentially our Quentin Nelson. Happy with that. No issue with that. If they want to trade, if they think George Carl Aftis is essentially Aiden Hutchinson, just available at 15 instead of one, then fine. Take George Carl after. No issue with that. I, I've De- Devin Lloyd, fine. If you want to go down that road, go down that road. If you trade that, just don't do it at nine and, and have some kind of a plan here and be prepared to take good players rather than reaching for those huge needs. Yeah, and it's just, it's been the pattern with this team. I know that, but 
that's why I'm just I'm so fascinated to see it what they do here because we've seen what's we've all identified what they've done wrong in the past. Like we, you just talked about this. They go in and they hyper focus on one position, and probably the biggest draft mistakes that they've made are probably Rashad Penny and LJ Collier. And Penny had a great end of the year, but still, you can't say that was a good use of a first round pick. So what they did in both those spots where they went in, they said we need to take a defensive end. They just traded Frank Clark away, and the year before, Chris Carson just got hurt, and Brian Schoenheimer was brought in, and. They hyper-focused on the defensive end group. All the defensive ends went. Rather than pivoting or moving down or saying, we just need to get the best player, they just went into the next defensive end on their list. And they drafted a guy who, by all indications, should have gone in the third round. Has not played like an NFL player. He's a fifth-round, sixth-round production guy. And to me, it's just been a flaw of their approach. And they should be looking at the draft differently, especially now given the state of where their roster is. And those teams with Russell Wilson were trying to win Super Bowls. So right now they should be trying to do everything they can to just get quality in the building because they have holes across the roster. And like I said before, they just don't have building blocks. So to me, I'm just fascinated to see, are they going to keep making these same mistakes and get cute? The word I've heard a lot about people from them around the league. They just, I don't know if they think they're smarter than everyone or they think they're risk takers. They're just valuing people incorrectly. And you mentioned Will Disley's contract. That's a great example of that where they just are not valuing people correctly in the league and all their money is at safety and they have a lot of money at tight end in the future. So I just want to see them understand. They understand roster building. They understand premium positions. They understand valuation because the draft isn't just player evaluation. It's a marketplace. You need to know where you can get someone. And they've made a lot of mistakes over the last few years, just drafting people at the wrong spots. Like I've joked that like they could have just taken Mel Kuyper's big board taking the next guy on the list and they probably would have done like 50% better. And that is not a way you should be approaching the draft when you have scouts and you've probably spent thousands of hours trying to evaluate this every year. So to me, you have to look at the draft and you have to know your team. And I know left tackle as a whole, but again, if you're passing up potential pro bowl ceiling at corner to get an okay tackle, just to fill tackle when your roster isn't good, like they need to be looking at this down the road. They have two, two really big drafts in the next two years and just not a lot of core players right now. Again, DK Metcalf probably is one of their core players and they might trade him. So this is not a roster with like, you look at the teams that are built for the future and how young teams built up. Like the Bengals got Burrow Higgins and chase and two strike drafts. And they went from the worst team in the NFL to the Super Bowl this year. So really they're not going to get Joe Burrow in this draft, but you have to start building a core of, me and you are in agreement. There's a lot of quarterbacks in the next draft. And if you can put a really good like a, a infrastructure in place, whether that's building the offensive line, whether that's rebuilding the secondary and fixing your defense, if your whole draft just went this year to fixing your defense, I'd be totally okay with that. And then all of a sudden you spend next year fixing the offense. That's fine. Like let Geno Smith and Drew Locke get hit. I don't care. Run the ball all game. I don't, as long as your defense looks like it has building blocks for the future. So to me, this draft is going to be a real indication of whether they've learned from past mistakes, whether they are self-scouting. But if they do the same thing over and over, it's just it's going to be really hard to get excited about this team because they've done some weird things in free agency. They they, they made they finally pulled the trigger on this trade, and these draft picks are going to what's going to determine whether this team has a legitimate future or not. One of the worst or the most problematic things that I've heard this offseason was John Schneider bristling at Bob Stelton 
yes. on 7-10. Completely unprovoked, suddenly like launched into a, you a bit of an attack. Yeah. Because because he because Bob Stelton had accused them of being cute. And he just he just sort of threw it out there. It had obviously been preying on his mind, and he thought his you know, and he, he couldn't help himself, and he suddenly started, you know, pushing back against that. And it and it worried me a little bit, Jeff, because that to me sounded like there'd been very little self-scouting going on. That mm -hmm. essentially rather than sort of acknowledge that there'd been any mistakes made, it was you, you how dare you criticize us. We made we have scouts working 17 hours a day. How dare you say that we've been cute? You know, really, it should be. Well, not, no one's doubting that the people who were employed by the Seahawks to scout these players have worked extremely hard and had conviction that they were doing the right thing. But you can also question whether the right decisions were still made and whether those decisions were cute. And what I really hope would have happened, I think Bob Stelton was caught off guard. I really hope that he would just have pushed back at that point himself and gone, I think you have been really cute. And here's the here are the players that I think you've made a mistake on. If you want to address why you don't think that was a mistake, here's the floor is yours. But I'm going to stick with what I said. And instead, it kind of got a bit awkward. And no one really knew what to do because it was kind of spontaneous. And I don't blame Bob Stelton for that. It can be a bit, a bit weird sometimes when suddenly somebody brings up something you've said when they're not around on the radio weeks or months ago. But I, it worried me because it, to me, that was not a a GM who's gone away and thought, okay, we've not done the best job recently. What have we been getting wrong? It, it sounded to me a lot like I fully believe that what I've done is right. And now I have a whole bunch of picks to, to, to go and do the same thing and just hope that the results will be better. And when you have sort of the framework, you know, and you, and you make the, I mean, you just run through it, Jeff. I mean, you know, when they, for example, take like a Kristen Michael in, in 2013, no one really questions that. And, you know, the, the picks that followed, you know, Paul Richardson instead of the other receivers in 2014. And, you know, you, you keep running through the, you know, people don't need me to tell you what the mistakes they did after that. No one really questions it because the team's good. But now it's going to be different. If they don't hit on these picks or if these picks are questionable decisions, they're going to get a lot of pushback. And, you know, I, I, I like you, I'm very interested to see what they do. Are they going to take... Are they going to accept what this draft is, which is a draft without your Jamar Chasers and your Joe Burrow types and your destined for greatness superstars? It's a kind of a meat and potatoes draft. And do you just sort of say, OK, we can't move down from now. We'll take the best cornerback. It's a premium position. We'll just accept that we're going to get a really talented guy, whether it is Gardner, whether it is Stingley Jr. I'm going to go with that. Or if they do trade down, are they just going to accept that? We, we ain't going to fill a hole at left tackle this year. We're not going to get an amazing pass rusher in the first round. So rather than sort of do something like very Seahawks-esque and, and draft someone like Sam Williams at number 15, which would be, you know, we, we you know you could see it happening, couldn't you? He ran a 4-4, he had a 1-5-2, 10-yard split, and his pass rush win percentage is pretty good. It, it wouldn't be a total shock at all if he's drafted number 15 by the Seahawks and they go, ah, Bruce Irving. But, it, you know, it's just... And, and seven teams are going to take him right after us. You know, it, it's... You could see something like that, or do you, do you just sort of move down a little bit and go, okay, you know, George Karloff, this he's never going to be amazing, but he might be a Ryan Kerrigan level player for you. And across from Daryl Taylor, maybe that's kind of what you need. Or you just say, okay, Zion Johnson, we've, you know, Gabe Jackson is well past his best. He's completely replaceable, well replaced, you know, with a guy who could be really good. 
you know, I, I've, as the process has gone on, Jeff, I've kind of gone from really hoping that they take this defensive stud up, uh, you know, with the first pick. And I still hope they do that. But I'm more and more open to just saying, if you want to be the, the Pete Carroll team, then build the Pete Carroll team. And if that means you take Zion Johnson and Tyler Linderbaum with your first two picks, trade down and then trade up, put them next to Damian Lewis and go, we're going to run the ball right up in your face, you know, and try and do that. Fine. But build the team to do that. Don't try and do that having said Austin Blythe and Gabe Jackson are good enough. So we're fine. We're, we, we drafted a, I don't know, another receiver or something. You know, it, it's just build the team to match the vision. And I, I'm really ho- I really hope we can just come out of this draft, Jeff, going no reaches, no forced picks, just, yeah, I can, I can buy into that as a first draft in a rebuild. That's the biggest thing I think I'm looking for in this draft. Like I heard Danny Kelly talk about it also. And uh, I think you just want to come out of their draft and just say that was smart. Like that was right. Not coming out of their draft and saying like, yeah, that was normal almost. Like they took a guy where he's supposed to go and it's a good pick. But I can't remember the last time that happened. And it might've been DK Metcalf and he's turned out to be probably their best draft pick in the last seven years. And they, They've done some weird things over and over, and at some point they just need to just see see what the draft is. And like you said, the thing that I it's been driving me bonkers about this team is that a team that Pete clearly and you touched on this, Pete clearly has an identity of how he wants to play. It does not make any sense to me that they haven't built a team like that. Uh, maybe that was for Russell. There's been a lot of chatter that Pete loved Russell almost to the point where he lost himself. And people have talked about drafting Dwayne Eskridge last year and doing things just to like try to make Russell happy rather than building the team. Well, now Russell's gone. So that excuse goes out the window. But that's why to me, like you mentioned some of the centers in this draft. There's some really intriguing guys. So you look at this draft and there's a really opportunity to kind of set the table for what you want to be and how you want to build a team in this next phase. And just trying to reach and be cute and misevaluate the board. Like you said, if they move down and they take Karlaftis or they take Zion Johnson, those are two like very clean, very good prospects. Totally fine with them. Get another day two pick, get another third rounder in there, or get a second rounder, and you come out with those guys, you're very happy. Tyler Linderbaum would be your center of the future. He fits, as you said, a lot of the the specs of what how they want to build their players. And Austin Blythe again, he's not a guy you should be looking at and being like, oh, this is our guy for ten years because then you're in the same spot. You were last year, and I think Austin Blythe made $900,000 with the Chiefs last year. He didn't play. He played like 13 snaps, and the Seahawks gave him $4 million. But I don't know what warranted a 400% raise, but that's been the Seahawks. Like They could have signed Austin Blythe last year. They went with Kyle Fuller, who honestly Kyle Fuller cost them two games, in my opinion, just how bad he was. And you need to come out of this thing like, okay, these guys have a plan. We want to see – because right now I have no idea what the roster is. I'm waiting to see what the draft – because the draft is the talent acquisition phase that matters for a rebuilding team. But right now you look at the roster, you can't see what they're thinking here. It's just bits and parts all over the place. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm trying to find the article because um, you you talking about giving Austin Bly the massive raise reminded me that essentially when they signed Bruce Irvin, they gave him something like – 40% pay increase off his Panthers salary. Yeah. And it, and it was 
well, why? You know, what, who was who was competing to sign him? And yeah, I mean that that has been one of the confusing things. I know they said that there was a few teams sniffing around Will Disley and they ended up paying that, but that you know, again, that you just look at it, you think, why have you spent that much there? Why has he cost yeah. that much? And also, free agency for the Seahawks has become an exercise in purely signing players on short-term contracts. They never sign anybody for like, okay, we, we really believe this guy. He's He is a not just an option for next year. He's an option for three, four years. You know, like look at the Bengals, for example. They like, our offensive line's crap. Let's just go and sign some offensive linemen out there, you know, who may not be, you know, Joe Thune, but we're going to go and sign somebody who's not going to be a liability and we're going to give him a four-year contract. You know, with the Seahawks, it's like, well, yeah, you've got Austin Blythe for a year. So if he's great, you end up in a position where you maybe have to overpay him. And if he's not great, everyone goes, well, what now? You, you're looking, it's, it's another, you know, every single off season, they are going into, um, well, they're walking into a problem, Jeff, where they're not just trying to re-sign players. They are having to replace so many players. They have like a shell of a roster. They have like 20 guys <laughs> signed. And and if it's not Blythe, it's they, they go and then sign another one year contract. They're constantly just churning over players. And and what you kind of really need is you, you do need to actually put down some roots somewhere. You know, there have to be players. And and the thing about free agency is I get it. Look, I understand why teams there's a lot of teams out there. They don't want to go and throw money at free agency. They don't want to just go and sign it. It can be a bit bit of a situation where it's full guy, you go and throw money, bad money at players, and they don't work out, you get tied to these contracts and you know, average players get paid like elite players, get all of that. Mm-hmm. But eventually you do have to go out and sign. I mean, even the Patriots, I mean, how disciplined has Bill Belichick been over the years? And even last year, he just went, we've got to go and spend some money. And they, yeah. they did. They went and signed some guys. The Seahawks are going to have to do it next year. They're going to have to go out and accelerate this build in the same way they did in 2011 when they signed Sidney Rice and Zach Miller and Robert Gallery. They're going to have to go and accelerate the build by signing players. But by constantly getting these one-year deals, it, there's a question mark permanently at certain positions. And if you go and sign, like, if you say that, okay, what we want is a shorter, short-armed center who's great at wrestling, well, then just go and draft Tyler Linderbaum. You know, if you trade down and yeah. take him at 16, I don't care. You know, like, listen, he's probably going to be, by all the talk, like Tony Pauline is very plugged in, says no team's got more than a second-round grade on it. Fine. If that's how it is, fine. And if he's going to be there in round two, fine. But, you know, I'm kind of thinking, if that's what if you, you, Pete Carroll has gone on a platform and said, we want that. So draft that. Get four years or five years of club control and get the five-star version of Austin Blythe. And then, if nothing else, you can say, we've got, if nothing else, we have that. And and that's it. And you can sort of move forward and, and I don't know, sign Dwayne Brown and Brandon Shell or whatever. You know, it's... I, I, for me, they've, they've just got to start putting down some roots. Anyway, I feel like we've we're, we're in danger of being overly negative with two weeks to go. One thing I've kept saying on the blog is I'm going to judge this after it's happened, not before it's happened. Me too. I want to see. I will see what happens and give them a chance to have a great draft and then be positive about it. But there is part of me that there's the Trevor Penning thing, and then there's look, and I like Sam Williams in round two or three. I don't want them to take him at number 15 overall. That, <laughs> he, he is the kind of player that you could see them doing that for. So, let, well, let's see how it goes. What I wanted to talk about, Jeff, is so at the start of this thing, and I was going to do this really early in the podcast, we're half an hour in and we haven't done it, is that of the names that I said were going to be, we assume are not going to be there, you know, the four pass rushers, the two offensive linemen, Gary Wilson. You know, let's push Wilson to one side because I don't think the Seahawks are going to take a receiver in the top 10. 
no. of the sort of the six linemen then, you know, the four pass rushers and the two offensive linemen, who is most likely to fall to nine? Because it would be, I'm not going to assume that I'm right on this and that they're all going to be gone because I'll turn on Mel Kuyper's mock draft, Evan Neal's at number nine. You put on Todd McShay's mock draft, I think Jermaine Johnson and one of the offensive linemen were there. You know, it's every mock draft they seem to see has one of these players that I assume are going to be gone at number nine. Now, admittedly, Tony Paulini is saying the top four pass rushers are going to go in the first five picks and he doesn't see any way that these guys are going to fall. But who do you think is the player of, let's say, the, the big six um, that could slip through the cracks to number nine that you would have to take? Yeah, I think it's going to be probably Jermaine Johnson because I think he's more of a specific need to a couple of teams. And I think there's a couple of really interesting pivot points if you're Seattle. So the Giants have five and seven. And the Giants, like me and you, have acknowledged that next year's draft is supposed to be a lot better. And all indications are they want to move one of those picks down so they can get a, a one next year. So they want to have more ones next year because Daniel Jones is in the last year's deal. So five and seven, if the Giants move out and someone moves up there for a quarterback, or there's a lot of talk also the Giants like Charles Cross because they have Andrew Thomas at left tackle and they might view him as a really good right tackle. If that happens or Carolina takes a quarterback, that's going to push someone down. So five, six, and seven, all is a possibility. It has a domino effect for Seattle. If Jermaine Johnson or Neil or Kwanu can slip through that little run, one of those guys has a very good chance of making it down to Seattle because – I think Atlanta, like you said, I think Atlanta at eight, they're going to, a lot of people just think they'll take receivers. And if you look at their depth chart, they have the worst receiving depth chart you've ever seen. So it'd be very surprising if they didn't take one. So I think if Jermaine Johnson doesn't go in the top four picks, I think he has a chance to slip. I think Neil and Aquanu are at the same spot, where if one of those guys just gets through the Giants at five, and then you might see like a cross quarterback someone else, all of a sudden that has a domino effect and that could push someone down to Seattle. So those five, six picks are really valuable to where Seattle is because I think someone, I think Aquanu might be the number one player on Seattle's board, just knowing how they view their roster and how they view prospects. Like Icky Aquanu seems like the guy that Schneider and Carroll would love. So I think if he's there, they take him in a second. The pass rushers, there's potential of Thibodeau slipping just because of his kind of personality and some of the off-field concerns about him. But I think someone's going to convince himself into him. So I think Jermaine Johnson, just because he's a little older, has only had one year of success, I think he's the best of that big six, where if that domino effect happens I'm talking about, I think he could be the beneficiary. And if I'm Seattle, I take him within seconds. Yeah, I, I would um, I would take – I mean, it would be – if he's there at nine – I wouldn't even if the league was saying, "No, you've got to wait five minutes." So I said, "No, we're not. We're, we're handing the card in now, just in case." Um, I, I, I think that Jermaine Johnson is, you know, because Travon Walker's stocks kind of just gone up and up and up. I think Jermaine Johnson has quietly sort of had the same kind of off season. I think you put everything together: the one point five ten yards split, the combine, the fact that he was in the linebacker drills and seemed to be the alpha male amongst that great group, the Senior Bowl performance where he dominated. 
a great year at Florida State and people forget that he wasn't that bad at Georgia the year before and it was just a numbers game there for him as to not reaching out. Great character, you know, great with his hands, defends the run very well. The the talk uh, has been a lot of, well, will the Jets take him at number four? You know, in fact, as he leapfrogged Kayvon Thibodeau now as a safer option and if you are a team that wants to take a pass rusher, and I think the big thing is, is that the Jets, there's a lot of talk that the Jets want to take O-line, D-line with their two picks, that they don't think Garrett Wilson will be there at number 10. And they, like I said, they want to focus on the trenches. Now, if, if they wait to 10 for a pass rusher, there won't be one there. Yeah. If they take Jermaine Johnson at four, then Trevor Penning may be there at 10. Charles Cross may be there at 10. You could take somebody a little bit late. You could trade down. You know, they've got a few options there to get the offensive linemen still. But by 10, the pass rushes are gone because even if Johnson lasts to nine, he's gone. So Seattle will take him. So I think Jermaine Johnson will go in the top four. I think the the top two will be Hutchinson and probably Walker. It seems to be feeling that way. Houston are an interesting one. I don't know if you saw Lovie Smith come out and basically say, we need cornerbacks um, in a press conference recently. Which was kind of thinking, well, why would he say that? Unless he was, I, 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 it could be a, a complete red herring. But to me, it was like, well, okay, one of their first two picks is now going to be a cornerback because Lovey Smith is making it clear. Do they go Source Gardner at three? I mean, it's not completely out of the question. People, a lot of people assume Evan Neal will go at number three because of Nick Saban and um, Nick Serio being from the Patriots. But I don't know. And that, that to me feels a little bit like, and I've been mocking it, but it feels a little bit like two plus two equals five. Is that, you know, oh, well, Alabama guy, Patriots guy, therefore, well, they're definitely going to come together and take Evan Neal. And they, they do still have Laramie Tunsil. They do still have another first-round offensive lineman. They have no pass rushers. They have a head coach saying we need a cornerback. I, I just wonder, you know, I mean, maybe they... I, I think they could be a legit. If they don't go cornerback at three, they might be a team that trades up to number nine. In the yeah. if the, you could have the Vikings and the Texans both sort of jostling there, thinking if Source Gardner was there at number nine, you could get a really attractive trade offer. And and if Source Gardner's not, they might think Derek Stingley. And then the other option is sort of you know Andrew Brown and Trent McDuffie. You know they're a little bit later on, but um, I, it could be interesting with Houston. I think the player that I think might have them, and I don't think it's going to, it's going to happen, Jeff, but I do think that there's a, at least a, some possibility that Evan Neal does slip a little bit. He's done no testing. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that... I mean, I, I'm convinced that he's better at guard than, than tackle. And the, the, the man who drafted Brandon Scherf for the Commanders says that Evan Neal is basically Brandon Scherf. So, who was a tackle in, at, at yeah. Iowa, and he told me that he thinks Neil is Scherf. Is, is that's a comparison? So, when he said that, I thought, well, that kind of validates it a little bit. You know, like Scherf, he's going to go inside and be a really good guard for a number of years. But it does make me think a little bit. You know, if you're a team that you know, how do you want to take a guard really early? I mean, do you, or do you want to take a pass rusher or a cornerback or a quarterback? Even you know, it's. How early does he go if he is viewed as a guard? That's that's a question. And, you know, if you see sort of four pass rushers go off in the top five, the Quanu then, you know, potentially, 
let's say, I mean, and look, the Jets may take Aquanu at number four. That's plausible. But let's say, I don't know, Aquanu comes off the board. The top four go in, the pass rushers go four. Giants say we like Charles Cross. Charles Cross is very like Deion Dawkins, by the way, who was in Buffalo. So, yes. you know, it's Joe Shite. You know, he might go, well, actually, we like that type of tackle. So we can take a Thibodeau maybe at number five. And we know that Charles Cross is going to be there because Aquanu is still on the board. So we'll, we will take Thibodeau and Cross rather than Aquanu and, well, no pass rusher, then Source Gardner. If they want if they want to go O-line, D-line, then that makes sense. Thibodeau, Cross rather than the other way around. And then if Aquanu is at six and Cross is at seven, then I don't think the, Fal- the Falcons have already got three first-round picks on their offensive line. They're not going to take an offense. That's the one area that the Atlanta yeah. Falcons are actually okay. It's probably the only area on the field <laughs> that they're okay. They're not taking another tackle. So unless someone trades up, which I guess, you know, Ravens, Chargers could do that if Evan Neal lasts. But then I, I, it's not beyond the realms of possibility, force to nine. And, and frankly, Jeff, even if he is Brandon Scherf, I'm, I'll take him. I'll, I will happily try him at tackle. And if he fits at guard, Evan Neal is just, he's, if, if I, I like the idea of having Brandon Scherf for five years at a great on a great contract for the Seahawks. And you know, if nothing else, he'd be a great run blocker. Yeah, when you said that, I, I looked at that as a pretty big positive. If you can get a Brandon Scherf at pick nine in this draft, like as a the prospect he was, I think the Redskins took him fourth or fifth overall. So or, I don't know if you can call him the Redskins anymore. But um anyway, yeah, to me that would be a huge bonus. If Evan, like you said, there's gonna be a really interesting domino effect from the Seahawks perspective right around those four to six spots. And I think one of the offensive line, there are scenarios now where one of those offensive linemen could slip through the cracks because of what you just said, the Jets, they're pretty good up front on the offensive line. I know their general manager loves drafting offensive linemen, but they have no edge rush. And Carl Lawson came off. He was our big signing last year. He got hurt in preseason. So Robert Salad, if you remember his defense in San Francisco, the years they didn't have a pass rush, they were terrible. They ran that old Seattle defense. But if you can't get home with four on that defense, that defense sucks. And the year, all of a sudden, you had that defense with Bosa and Buckner and D Ford. All of a sudden, they went to the Super Bowl. So I think there's a huge emphasis from the Jets' perspective to get a pass rusher. So I, I'm with you. I think it will be a pass rusher of some sort at number four. But number five is where it's getting interesting because Carolina, if they don't take a quarterback, they're going to take a left tackle. They don't have a left tackle on their team. I know they were sniffing around Dwayne Brown a little bit too. So I think five, pick five, is going to be a tackle. But we don't know where it could be Charles Cross. And you mentioned the Deion Dawkins comparison. You mentioned that they need more of a right tackle than a left tackle. So if though if they take him at five and then Carolina goes quarterback, the Giants are going to take another offensive lineman at seven. And Atlanta's not going to get one at eight. So that's the scenario where what the Giants do at five has a huge impact because – that's where it can really have a domino effect to push someone down to Seattle. And that's what they have to be happening. Because if Cross goes there, and that's I think that's the biggest thing where you can get someone in the top six based on that domino. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I, and I think part of the reason why the Seahawks have not signed Dwayne Brown is just to sort of a wait and see, you know, just yeah. wait and see what happens there. And I think the Panthers too, you know, I think they, they are waiting to see as well. And, you know, I, I think we, we need to talk a little bit about quarterbacks and then I want to kind of come back to, to the Seahawks because I don't, I don't think this is a big conversation for the Seahawks this year, Jeff. Although maybe, maybe it is. Maybe I'm sort of dismissing it 
wrongly. But um, I don't, I mean, I, there's a lot of different information. Like Peter, I saw Peter King doing a podcast this week where he said that a general manager had told him that there's only going to be one first round quarterback and that'll be Kenny Pickett and that'll be later in the first round. You know, I've spoken to Scott McLuhan and he thinks three will go in the second half of the first round and they'll all be third round graded players. And yet Jason Akinfora, whatever you think of JLC, he says he clicks off any mock draft he sees that doesn't have two quarterbacks in the top 10. Now, frankly, I really hope that two quarterbacks go in the top 10 as long as one of them isn't to nine, because that means the, that someone is going to fall to the Seahawks like we're talking about here, who is going to be really, really good. And the encouraging thing, Jeff, is no, none of these reporters are you know, saying, ah, I think the Seahawks are going to take a quarterback here. They're all saying the opposite of that. Now, maybe that's a bad thing. Eh? Maybe, maybe the, the fact that the information coming out there is we're not going to take a quarterback and they fully intend to, but I, I just don't see it. I can't see the Seahawks taking a quarterback at nine, let's say. I think maybe you make a different argument when you get into round two. I think the, the minute you take one at nine, the pressure is on for that person to start. It's going to be almost impossible for the Seahawks to keep a lid on a, a number nine drafted quarterback over Geno, uh, the Geno <laughs> Smith or Drew Locke. The fans will not accept it. You will have to rush that player out there before he's ready. It could be a potential disaster. If you take someone at 40 or 41 or later, it's much easier to go, well, we're no, there's no rush here. They're not ready. They're not ready to play. We're going to give the other guy a chance. We're going to let them compete. We're going to see how it goes. And then in a year's time, we might draft somebody else like Will Levis. If you draft somebody in number nine, you ain't taking Will Levis in a year. You know, because you, you, you know, unless you want to go through the Josh Rosen kind of Murray thing, I don't think they're going to waste a top 10 pick on a quarterback this year. Maybe one of those second round picks will go on one, but. But no, but I don't see I, – I likewise don't see the Panthers taking one, Jeff. I mean, the, the David Tepper, the the, the uh, owner, has been really on his franchise. Like, get me a star quarterback. Get me a star quarterback. There's no star quarterback in this draft. You know, uh, get me a star – actually, just take, you know, one of these really crappy ones at number six overall, and that's our draft done because we're not picking again until round four. I mean, that, that to me just seems – really unrealistic. I think that they would have fired Matt Rule if his contract was not ridiculous. And I think that perhaps the owner knows Matt Rule's just here for another year. Scott Fitter is going to be here for longer than that. Scott, go and get a tackle and we'll talk about quarterbacks in 12 months' time. And if it, and if we have a terrible year, it's not the end of the world. If we're picking number one overall next year, we'll get the quarterback that we've been after for all this time and we'll have a tackle who we can draft. So I think that's what they're going to do. I think the Falcons are much more likely to take a quarterback in round two than they are at number eight. I think that they are almost in a similar situation to the Seahawks where they're just going to kind of suck it and see a little bit of quarterback here. There's a relationship between, I think, Arthur Blank and Marcus Mariota and the, the head coach and Marcus Mariota. They seem to like him. And yes, they're going to bring somebody else in, Jeff. But there's bringing somebody else in and there's bringing somebody else in. And number eight is, well, we're all in on this guy. He's the future of the franchise. And that, that's the thing. If you take a quarterback in the top 10, you are making a declaration to this player being your franchise. And taking any of these guys in the top 10 for me would be like taking Jake Locker in the top 10. Now, if you get a Desmond Ritter or a Matt Corral or uh, whoever in round two, it's different, isn't it? It's, it's Andy Dalton level. There's no pressure. There's no hype. There's no real expectation. You know, Drew Locke in Denver. You know, there was always kind of, oh, I'm interested to see how Drew Locke gets on. But no one was going, well, they've invested everything in Drew Locke. It was always kind of like he was just a guy on the roster. 
So there's a huge difference between first round and second round. So I don't think there's going to be quarterbacks in the top 10 as much as I hope that there will be. Is that kind of how you see it? And, you know, how do you sort of view the Seahawks approaching the quarterback position? Because I think the er- the earliest they will take one is if one falls into round two and is there at 40 and 41. Matt Corral potentially seems to be, you know, there's, his, his kind of hype's dying a little bit. Desmond Ridders is going way up, which I just find staggering, by the way. Go and watch the Navy-Cincinnati game and the first half of the Notre Dame game and the whole of the Alabama game and tell me that is a franchise quarterback. I mean, like, come on. So, yeah, do you, do you sort of see it that way from the Seahawks' perspective as well? I have no idea what, how the Seahawks are going to value this. I can tell you, for me, the quarterback talked within the Seahawks fan base, and I get why there's a hunger for a quarterback. It's the most important position. <laughs> I guess no one wants to see Geno and Drew Locke play next year. I get that. But to me, I wouldn't take a quarterback this year with any of their first three picks. And I think third round is where I would start because I think there's a huge opportunity cost. And I know when you don't have a quarterback, you need to fa- you need to overdraft them sometimes. You need to take chances. That's how they ended up with Russell in the first place with taking all these flyers on the wall and they had Flynn and they had Tavares Jackson and they ended up with Russell. But to me, there's an opportunity cost, especially when their team right now has a lot of needs. I want to see them use those first three picks to reestablish their roster, reestablish what their roster can be for the next few years to build something, whether that's an offensive line, whether that's build the trenches, whether that's build a secondary, build a defense. You can take, you've talked about it, three top seven front seven picks. If you'd put three front seven picks, your first three picks, you have the makings of a really good defense for the next few years, and you have a lot of picks moving forward. So to me, none of these quarterbacks are worth number nine. I think that would be – there was a lot of chatter when they made the trade that Malik Willis was, in my mind, in their mind, like the Russell Wilson replacement. I can understand that to a point. Like He was similar in some levels to what Josh Allen was as a quarterback prospect, and we know Schneider loved Josh Allen. So there was talk about that. It's kind of faded a bit. I don't know if that's going to happen, but to me, the idea of like taking Desmond Ritter at pick nine, there's a lot of chatter about that with the fans. And to me, that's just the opportunity cost. Of- uh, utter nonsense. I mean, it just, it's, I'm sorry, but that is just preposterous to, to consider, even consider Ritter at nine is ridiculous. Yeah. To me, it's just misevaluating the board. It's misevaluating. Him. I don't know how a player can rise all of a sudden by not playing in four months. A guy was like a 40, 50th pick overall and all of a sudden he had interviewed well and now people are talking about him like pick 12 to me that's absurd but that's the draft for you but again i don't even feel great about taking a quarterback in the second round i know a lot of the experts are tying Pete carroll to matt corral and you were the first one i remember who found that picture from the combine and found that report and it's an obvious tie and i get it but to me he like he's a quarterback that like primarily in rpos he's gonna have a big adjustment period to me, if you're looking at a potential like Abe Lucas or Cam Jurgens or an Arnold, I can't remember his name for Penn State, Ebiketti, I don't know. If you're passing on one of those guys to take like a, a flyer, a quarterback, to me, that's crazy. I, I want to build the best trenches, the best roster you can build with these next seven picks. And hopefully when you have the quarterback next year, you're putting them into an infrastructure that you can win with. And I think that's where teams have had a lot of success because I look at the Chargers right now, and that's where my like jealousy as like a fan comes, where they have the quarterback on the rookie deal, they got some good young players, and they can just spend money on overpriced veterans to try to win the Super Bowl. 
And they did it with Khalil Mack and JC Jackson. And you can do those things. And I think that's what I want with the Seahawks and rushing and starting that clock early when you don't have a left tackle, you don't have a, a defense that's good enough. And you're going to probably wrap to rush them. That doesn't excite me very much. But again, if like Desmond Ritter or Corral or Sam Howell's picked at 41, I'm not going to be devastated. It's just not what I would do personally. I think they need to rebuild their core players and then figure out quarterback later. I know that's a dangerous road because you never know when you might be in position to get a quarterback. But if we're honestly looking at this roster, this is a team that's probably going to be drafting in the top 10 next year. They're going to have two first-round picks. There's going to be a very good opportunity to get a quarterback next year. And when you drop that quarterback and you want him to be in position to succeed because that's clock starts. And we see where the quarterback salaries are going. And to have a quarterback on a rookie contract in the NFL right now is by far the biggest competitive advantage you can have. So you really want to time that out right. So start that clock now when you don't have an offensive line. You have Austin Blythe and Gabe Jackson, Jake Curran, a right tackle, and your two best players are wide receivers that you're going to have to pay $30 million soon for. And It just doesn't match to me. And to me, it's just the Ritter talk, the Corral talk. I think it's just basic connecting the dots. I know they visited with Ritter last week, or I don't. So maybe they, they're looking at that as a smokescreen. Maybe it's to, maybe to pick them at 40. I'd be fine with taking Ritter at 40, but I don't. I would not take a quarterback in this draft personally until the middle, the fourth, the fifth round, probably the fourth round would be the where I'd start looking. Completely agree. And that, that is the range where I, and I do think that there's a chance that someone like Caleb Ellaby, I mean, they, they, they loved the Eskridge. They took him from uh, Western Michigan a year ago and Caleb Ellaby was his quarterback. So I, you know, I interviewed Caleb Ellaby and he was positively glowing about the prospects of playing for the Seahawks. And I wouldn't be surprised, Jeff, if, Fourth, fifth, sixth round, whenever Ellaby's expected to go, chuck him into the mix. Drew Lock, Geno Smith, Caleb Ellaby, Jacob Eason, off you go, um, chaps. You know, go and have a battle in, in training camp. They, they've got Geno Smith, who knows the system. So, worst case scenario, he will be the starter. And you give him a go and you enjoy a year. And look, they were really patient in 2010, 2011. And then in 2012, they took a spectacular prospect. In, in And yes, they waited till round three to take him, but. There was so much upside with Russell Wilson and they threw him into a competition with which he won. And I take some solace from that. I, I, it, drafting a quarterback early this year is the opposite of trying to compete this year. Because if you take Corral or Ridder, I know Ridder's come up with this big speech of how I'm going to win the job as a rookie and all of this to impress teams. And I'm sure some teams will be wowed by that. Um, they're all going to have to sit. Willis, Pickett, Howell, they all have to sit. And if you spend a you know nine, forty, or forty-one, Jeff, on a quarterback, you've wasted a, a pick on a player who could actually feature this year. So I don't think they're gonna do that. I think that it is gonna be a sort of a later round pick, throw into the competition, see how they get on. That's how it's gonna be, and they're gonna go with other players early. And rightly so. Look, Desmond Ridder, people you know, they have these little draft crushes, don't they? And I get the sense that he's become a bit of a draft crush. Yeah. You just have to watch. Just I would just implore people to watch the tape. You know, for there are so many easy misses, incredibly frustrating inaccuracies in he's his got, throws. Yeah, he's got accuracy issues. He, he, he. I mean, like we're talking like wide open receivers, and he just misses his techniques off. He'd be leaning back. He throw. I mean, it's just it's really like watch the Navy game. It's awful. And you have, I just, I mean, I'd struggle. I've got him in round three. I mean, I don't, to, to say that you'd have him in the top 10 is, I think it's 
positively absurd. All right, but then I have Willis in round three. I have Pickett in round. Three. I just think the limit Pickett's limited. Willis doesn't throw over the middle and is and takes a, a, a ridiculous number of sacks. Um, Matt Corral, I like his throwing base. I like he's got a strong arm. He's got a great release, Jeff. I think he could be Jimmy Garoppolo type quarterback at the next level. But uh, you know he misses throwing downfield. He yeah, he has he has accuracy issues on, on the intermediate level as well. So there's none of there's nobody watching this group that you think. Ooh, you know, I'd be really excited to see them leading this team for the next 10 years. And then all I have to do is throw on a Will Levis highlights video. And I'm thinking, yep, that, that's who I want. That's, that's who I want. Give me him next year. He can lead you. And I, and I think that he's, he, he's the type of athlete that I think you can – there might be some growing pains. There always is with a rookie. But I think he could start quickly in the league in a year's time. So and, the, yeah, on. I was going to say, like you said, there's a huge opportunity cost of taking a player at this spot. Because you, this draft, I remember I brought it up initially, and we've talked about it, is a lot like that 2011 quarterback draft where Christian Ponder, Blaine Gabbard, and Jake Locker were all picked in the top 12. And if you look, for example, Jacksonville, they took Blaine Gabbard in the top 10. The opportunity cost of that was J.J. Watt, Robert yeah. Quinn, and Jake Locker went one pick before Tyron Smith. And I don't think there's a Tyron Smith or a J.J. Watt. Those are first ballot Hall of Famers in this draft. But – there's a huge opportunity cost in swinging and going for it. I know there's a mentality that like you have to go for it when you don't have a quarterback. And even if you fail, you can go again next year. But again, you have to remember you're giving up not only these picks are like you trade Russell Wilson for these picks swinging on a quarterback just for the sake of it to me is not why you trade Russell Wilson. You trade Russell Wilson because your roster wasn't able to progress because you weren't drafting well out of the twenties. Now you're going to be drafting and John Schneider's talked about so much, like the difference between being in the top half of the draft and where they've been drafting. I mean, this might be an excuse, but he's really talked about how once you hit a certain point on the middle of the first round, the players are all the same. And there's a huge difference in quality being at the top. And I know everyone talks about Bruce Irvin, like it was a good thing. But if you remember, the guys who went after Bruce Irvin, the next two pass rushers were Melvin Ingram and Chandler Jones. Mm -hmm. Those yeah. guys are all pro players. So. Again, there's – and you know who they – the 12 pick, they, they moved down from the 12th spot. That was Fletcher Cox. So yep. those are all, all pro guys. So there's huge opportunity costs and all this stuff. And I think just reaching on a quarterback for the sake of it when, by all indications, your team is not going to be very good this year, and I think that's fine. I think they should be taking a two-year look at this thing, put the seven picks back in the program, maybe get more, trade down from some of these, get more. And you have the you have makings of like a very good core of your roster if you do this draft well. And if you do what Miami did and take Tua and get cute, you're left with a team. Yeah, they got Tyreek Hill now and they had to trade more picks for that, but they were left as that seven, eight win team that's kind of going nowhere. So to me, that's what these quarterbacks are. They're the Andy Daltons, they're the Jimmy Garoppolo's. I don't even know if they're as good as them. So to me, I don't see the point of that. I'd rather try to get players that can play this year and guys who you can build position groups with. How are you for time, Jeff? Have you got another 10, 15 minutes? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. I mean, I, cause I want to look sort of talk about the, we, we, we've, we've spent a bit of time there talking about what we don't want to happen. I, I do want to spend a bit of time talking about what I hope <laughs> happens. Um, and, you know, just to give you a general feeling and, you know, you say if there's any of this you disagree with, if there's any sort of preferences that you have, um, I know we touched on a bit of this at the start. For me at number nine, if 
Jermaine Johnson's there, or if one of those players that we assume is going to be gone is there at nine, I think you take them and you feel very happy about it. You say, okay, rare situation to pick in the top 10. We've got one of the best players in the draft. That is an Evan Neal or a Jermaine Johnson. Great. I still think Derek Stingley is one of the best players in the draft. I happily take him as well. If you if the if the guys aren't there and or if you just don't have confidence in the list Frank injury for whatever reason or um, you just don't want to take cornerback early because they you know they haven't done that since Carolyn Schneider took over, then I'm comfortable trading down and then taking. I you know I re, I I came into this process sort of arguing against Zion Johnson because I think that there is examples on tape Jeff where he struggles in pass protection and I think we saw some of that in the Senior Bowl. He was getting promoted well beyond his performance level at the Senior Bowl for his reps. But I think that's because he is very aggressive when he tries to pass protect and he can get caught lunging and he is a bit of a, a waste bender. And because he is so aggressive, he loses reps. Yeah. Now, when you actually watch the tape, his run blocking is sensational. Now, what do the Seahawks want to do? They want to run the ball. I think if you plug Zion Johnson in at left guard, you could be talking easily about a decade-long run here. And I, look, it's very, you have to be very careful, don't you? Because when you start talking about what could he be at left guard in Seattle, people will automatically start making a very specific comparison to a left guard who played in Seattle. Could he be that? I don't know. I'd hate to sort of pin him to be that kind of level of player. Do I think he could lead the way to a fantastic running attack? Yes. Do I think you're going to have to take him in the range that Elijah Vera Tucker was taken last year, which was 14th overall? Yes, I think he's going to go in the middle of the teens. At the worst, he's going to go 21 overall. Would I celebrate that pick as much as I would probably celebrate Derek Stingley? I probably would, to be honest. I'd probably say, yeah, do you know what? I can buy into that. I think Seahawks Twitter will explode. But I think that, for me, that's fine. And if you trade down a little bit there, and then trade up from 40 to get Tyler Linderbaum, I'm, like I said, I am completely with that. But if it's not them, go and get an Abraham Lucas in round two. Plug him in at right tackle. I think he's got everything. He's been massively underrated throughout this. People go, ah, oh, he's in an air raid system. Washington State ran the ball 46% of the time last year, 42% of the time the year before. They are not the, the Mike Leach offense anymore. Yeah. So, And by the way, if you go on PFF's draft guide, if you have a subscription, have a look at his run blocking grade. If, if you give me a couple of moments, I'll dig it out. It's something like a 90. So he's actually his run blocking grade was better than his pass blocking grade, according to PFF. So don't tell me about Abraham Lucas can't run block or do any of this stuff. He's a really good player. I really like Sam Williams in round two. Not in round one. In round two, fine with it. Run a 4-4, 1-5 split, 1-5-2, 10 yards split. Gets around the edge. Looks a lot like Daryl Taylor. Could be a great bookend. Happy with it. By all means, take any of the three Georgia linebackers. Yeah, I'm happy with that. And there's a few other linebackers in this draft I'm happy with. But, you know, just for the argument's sake, I think getting a Georgia player in this draft is important because they were pretty good last year. And then, you know, there's, there's you know, if it's Cam Jurgens instead of Tyler Linderbaum, fine. If it's, you know, if it's Carl Laftis instead of Zion Johnson, fine. You know, I don't want them to take another linebacker early, Jeff, because I think that's been one of the problems that they've invested in the wrong positions. But if it's Devin Lloyd, whatever. If you end up taking Boya Mafia in round two, okay. You know, if if you if you end up taking a cornerback in round two or round three, like a Cam Taylor Britt or Damari Mathis instead of Derek Stingley, I'm fine with that as well. There's a lot of options there. And then when you get into the middle rounds, I love Damian Pierce. I don't want them to see, I don't really want them to take a running back in the 
for the first three picks. If they can get Damian Pierce in the middle of the round, I think he could be Frank Gore for, for, for them. And if not, I think he could be a really nice compliment to Rashad Penny. So, and, and there's other names. I really like Logan Bruss as a potential versatile offensive lineman. I like Percy Butler, the safety at Louisiana. has got special teams value. I really like Michael Clemens. I, Michael Clemens has massive limitations, okay? He's not a great run defender for a start, despite his size. But I'll tell you what, if you can get him in round four, round five, he can do things that Daryl Taylor can do as a pass rusher. And as a rotational pass rusher, if you're not going to get somebody in, in the top 10, like Jermaine Johnson, I'd happily have Michael Clemens rotating in with Incheno and Wosu across from Daryl Taylor and Alton Robinson. That, to me, would be fine to move forward. And, and look, you can run... Th- I, there's others. I like Logan Hall. I think Logan Hall could be really good for you in that sort of Quinton Jefferson role. He's kind of like a plus Quinton Jefferson. He's got a lot of the things they like. I really like Zach Tom. I like Jack Cohen as well as Caleb Ellaby as a later-round quarterback option. I really like Zamir White. And there are receivers, you know, Christian Watson, Alec Pierce, Kevin Austin Jr., that in a certain range, I would be content with. And I want to finish talking about DK Metcalf on this thing, by the way. Yeah. But... They're the kind of the, the players that I'm thinking about there, Jeff. If I haven't mentioned a player, there's probably a reason for that. Are there any other players there that you think, well, actually, no, I, I've got this guy on my mind and you haven't mentioned him there, Rob. Or, you know, that's a player that you've mentioned that I'm not as interested in, you know, is, or, or any, any sort of thoughts as I was sort of rambling on about that. No, you've been pretty consistent throughout the whole process of who you like, who you think is a good fit for them, and basically – who fits their specific skill sets because they're changing what they value at certain defensive spots. So the one guy I'm just I still coming back to it is Jordan Davis. And he's kind of gone a little quieter. And I know I think a lot of fans would freak out about that, but if they took him at nine, he's not a guy I'd be upset with at all. And he's just like a unicorn level defensive tackle that could be a dominant player against the run. And I know that would be the guy who doesn't have a huge pass rush value. But to me, I think he's one of – like when he was at the Combine and we didn't have a draft pick, I saw you talk about this, that I, I couldn't help but think, like, man, I want that guy on my team. And to me, that would be a really good one. I really like – I know Channing Tindall's a guy. Like I would love to come out of that, this draft with him and have him and Jordan Brooks as your linebackers for the foreseeable future. Cody Barton was fine last year, but just like I think Tindall is going to be a better pro than he was in college. I've seen people start to come on with him a lot. I think there's that sweet spot of outside linebackers really around where the Seahawks pick in the second round. So I think one of those two picks, I would like to see them get an outside linebacker. Off ball. Well, now they're going to be in more inside linebacker. And then you have, say you have Brooks and Tyndall as your three, four inside linebackers to run that Vic Fangio scheme. To me, that would be really exciting. Um, offensive line, Zion Johnson is a really good prospect, but there's some of the centers I really like. And let me just pull up the list I made. I like Cam Jurgens from Nebraska. I think he's a perfect fit for what they do here. I think him in the second round would be – I'd, I'd be very excited about that. I, I see a lot of people tying him to other like Shanahan-level schemes, like the 49ers might take a look at him. The Rams might take a look at him. And to me, he just fits really well. And to me, that gives you a five-year, four-year starter rather than plugging holes with Ethan Posick and Austin Blythe and Kyle Fuller. I think he's a really good, interesting prospect. I think Cole Strange is a guy who's pretty interesting to me. I think he's got upside. I think he can be a, a center for them. And there's a guy from Kentucky, Fortner. I, I know Jim Nagy's talked about that. He thinks he's going to be a 10-year starter. You can get him in the third or fourth round. Luke Fortner, I think his name is. 
Yeah, I, I must admit, when I watched him, I, I don't agree with yeah. uh, that assessment. I think he has some... He's very good at getting to the second level, but I just, I'm, yeah, I'm not as sure on the 10 year start of thing. But yeah, Paul Strange is a great shout. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's just getting players. And even if you don't take corner in round one, there's some interesting guys that you can just get Tariq Woolen and the, uh, the guy you mentioned from Alabama might be a really good scheme fit yeah. considering that Carl oh, Scott, the new, yeah, Carl Scott came from Alabama. Roger McCreary is a little smaller, but he's got some confidence and attitude that they can bring back into their defense and i think all throughout this draft there's some really just interesting players whether that's defensive linemen defensive tackles if they can come out and have like the most dominant front line against like how tampa bay was the last few years with vita vea and sue and how no one could run on them that was a huge strength especially our division where running the football is really important to me like if you take a jordan davis at the top of the draft or build a defense that can Again, there's some interesting interior guys. Travis Jones in round two, Perrion Winfrey. Like, there's guys all throughout that I like at different spots, whether it's – and they're all premium position guys, offensive line, defensive line, corner, just not quarterback. Mm. So I, I think what we've established is that it's actually easier to list the players that you don't like in a draft, in this particular draft class, than it is because there are just so many. It's a great draft. And that actually gives me a bit of confidence, Jeff, that it is such a deep draft that even if they – you know, whatever direction they go, the chances are they'll draft someone you like because it's that kind of draft class. And, that, and you know, I'm kind of holding on to that hope as a worst-case scenario. I'll just like whatever they do. And, you know, you mentioned Jordan Davis. He is kind of like the forgotten man of the draft yeah. a, little, a little bit because you had all of the combine stuff and then it, it's kind of fallen away and people have kind of gone away. And, and look, I get it. One of the concerns is that he played at about 360 last year. Yeah. And he trained to get to 340 for the combine. So if you get the 340 version that runs a 4.8 and does all of the stuff he did at the combine, he could be Vita Vea. If yeah. he just basically went on a diet for a month before the combine and now has been happily eating himself back into 365 pounds, then you potentially end up with a Mackay Becton situation whereby. Yep, the size, the athleticism, it all looks great, but he can't stay there. You know, it's, he just he's, he likes food too much. He's a he's a big guy, and that is the the slight concern with him. But if you believe, I mean, look, he's a he's kind of got a. This is kind of a weird thing to say. Certainly not a scientific or brilliant piece of analysis, but he kind of has quite a. He almost has like a star personality. You know, when you listen to him speak, you kind of can imagine him being one of the sort of the bigger names in the NFL. And there just aren't many humans like him who can do what he can do. And again, like you, if they took him very, very early, you can't dislike the pick. You know, yeah. it's not, okay. you know, all right, it's a two down nose tackle, you know, two gap in essentially up front. But yeah, do you know what? Whatever. If he ends up being Haloti Nata, no one's going to complain about that. So. Exactly. Um, so you know, down there, and the other guy, George, is Devontae Wyatt. Now, you watch Devontae Wyatt, and I, I see Geno Atkins and think he could be really, really good. But I don't know if you've seen this. I mean, there was a Charlie Campbell at Walter Football reports a lot of things, and you can never, you know, it's Charlie Campbell, it's not Adam Schefter, so you can never always think, well, but he, he wrote something, I think, I think it was him suggesting there were some quite serious allegations against Devontae Wyatt really? that could impact his stock. And not, nobody else has reported this, but then Todd McShay really randomly on the first draft podcast on ESPN uh, last week 
just casually dropped in that there are some con character concerns with Devontae Wyatt, which makes me think that actually there might be some legitimacy to this and people are just having a hard time standing it up. Yeah. Um, but that's something to monitor. That's kind of put me, you know, you, you can't help but sort of talk about a person less when you read the allegations. But he's still a really good player. And if those allegations are unfounded, he deserves to be considered as a really high pick as well. I have got a just I think this is important just to point out. So according to the PFF draft guide, Abraham Lucas's run block grade was a 91.0. Wow. So let's just forget all of the the guy can't run block because he's in an air raid. Mike Leach has not been there for a while now. So let's just sort of nip that in the bud. So you know, I think we've kind of gone through some names there and got a flavor of the kind of players that we're hoping for. So fingers crossed in two weeks, we're, we're talking about some of those players rather than Malik Willis or Trevor Penning or um, something else. I did mention that um, there's, there's two other things I want to finish with, Jeff, very quickly. A surprise prediction. What everybody tries to to work out what the surprise is going to be. Everyone says there's going to be a surprise because there always is in the top 10. You know, somebody... Chicago trading up one spot to make sure they get Mitch Trubisky in the draft where Mahomes and Watson are there is a great one. What is going to be the surprise, do you think? I'll give you a bit of chance to think about it. Mine is that if Neil and Aquanu are off the board by six, I wonder whether Carolina will take Trevor Penny at number six, just because of the profile and the need. And they'll do what we think Seattle or fear Seattle might do at nine, they'll just do it at six. Scott Fitter is from Seattle. So I would I, jump I, I off wonder, the couch celebrating if that happened. I just I just wonder if that rather than it being Charles Cross, who everyone anticipates is going to be like the third offensive lineman in the top ten, could it be Trevor Penning instead? That is my sort of dart I'm gonna throw as could be the surprise. Yeah, I think for me I mentioned Cross going to the Giants at five, that would be one, but I think the one that I'm starting to hear a little more buzz on and it's possible is I think the Falcons who at pick eight could take Jamison Williams at pick eight over, over Garrett Wilson, over Drake London. And I think the Falcons have a pretty understanding of where they are right now. And there's a lot of people who are of the belief that Williams, not Garrett Wilson has the biggest ceiling of any player. He's just coming off an ACL injury. So if you're Atlanta and you're, you know, you're not going to be good next year, you're probably positioning yourself to get up. You trade Matt Ryan away. You probably want to get a quarterback next year. So you have the luxury of time. So I wonder if they like look at Jameson Williams, who does have the ceiling in a lot of people's minds of that number one receiver. Maybe they roll the dice on him knowing that they can wait for him to recover. They can bring him along slowly because they're not trying to be good right now. And I think there's just a lot of buzz that he might end up in the top 10. So I think that would be my shocker. But petting at six would be really exciting. That would be I would celebrate that. So I'll have to sweat out that ninth pick. Yeah. I, I think, you know, the other, the other team that I'm really intrigued to see what they're sort of planning is the Saints. I mean, like they've just basically done a trade to acquire a mid first round pick. Now, when teams acquire a pick in like the top three, you think, well, they're guaranteeing themselves a certain player or position here. But when you, you're not guaranteeing anything by no. getting the pick that they've, you know, they just have another pick now this year. And you kind of think, well, what are they going to do? You know, like, because, you know, you could, with the best intentions, we're going to acquire this extra pick. You know, people are going, well, they, they want a receiver and a quarterback or a, a tackle and a receiver. And it's like, well, that, yeah, that's fine. But what if all the receivers are gone by the time they pick? You know, then what? You've kind of got this extra pick you don't want anymore. I mean, like, there has to be, because they've added a pick, there has to and remove one next year. 
there has to be a really big plan in place here that goes beyond we're just going to sit here and take whoever happens to be there at our picks. There has to be some kind of thought. So I'm, I'm really keen to know what they're planning here, what their idea was with that trade. Um, the final thing I wanted to finish on was DK Metcalf, because I think if you'd have, you know, there was a lot of talk, you know, the weeks have kind of just meshed into one. I can't know, is it two weeks ago, three weeks, a month ago? You know, you had people like Jake uh, Heaps uh, on 7CN saying he thought that Metcalf was going to be traded and Brock Heward was kind of saying similar things. And, you know, you, you had to turn on YouTube and there'd be another video from ESPN talking about where DK Metcalf's going to be. It was dominating the NFL agenda. And it's just gone completely quiet. It's just gone, like the last week to 10 days, nothing. There's just been, we've all kind of been, what's going to be the next big domino? It's been an off-season of trades and big stories. What's going to happen next? Well, the tr nothing's happened. Everyone's just kind of quietly going into the draft. Now, the Frank Clark trade happened, what was it, like four days before the draft. So there's yeah. still time, you know, within the next week for something to happen. But I just increasingly get the sense, Jeff, and I don't know if you get this as well, that I think the Seahawks have very much left the door open for, for all possibilities here. But I just don't think anyone's stepping up to the plate. You know, like the Packers, the Chiefs, the Saints, the Eagles, um, the Jets, they've all kind of, yeah, we, we'd love to have DK, but we ain't giving you like two first-round picks. We're not giving you a Jamal Adams trade for DK Metcalf. And I think the Seahawks are therefore going, well, okay, we'll just keep him. And I, I, I just think that that's probably how it's going to be now until the draft. And then when the draft's finished, they'll probably come up with a contract extension between the draft and training camp. That's that's kind of how I think this is playing out here. I think if somebody did step up to the plate, like the Jets and offered 10 and 38, or you can go up to number four and we'll swap four for nine, but give you number 10 as well, for example, you know, something like that might might turn their head. Or if the Packers say, we'll give you the two firsts that we have, or if the Saints offered a first and this year and a second or something for DK, I think they might. They might look at that, but I, I just don't think anybody is. I think the teams are scared as much as Seattle might be a bit, mm, not sure if you want to pay him $25 million. I think other teams are thinking, mm, don't want to pay him $25 million and give up a first and a, or two firsts and a first and a second for him. Yeah, and that's exactly where I am. I, I, there's a lot of chatter just among the Seahawks fans freaking out about this, and I think we sort of lost touch with reality to an extent because there's a lot of people that think – they can get like the Jets 10th pick plus a second rounder or 10th pick plus a first next year, two firsts for DK Metcalf. And I know that he's 24 years old and he's been super productive for the first three years of his career, but the Jets, for example, let's look at the Jets for a second. They offered their offer for Tyreek Hill came out and it was actually accepted by the chiefs. If he had agreed to go to the Jets, he would have gone to the Jets and they offered their it was two third round. It was two of their top two second round picks this year, a third, and then it was like four picks that would have added up to like a middle first round pick in the trade chart. So they didn't even offer ten alone for Tyreek Hill, who's really the most dynamic player in the NFL. And well, as much as I like DK Metcalf, I really do. Tyreek and Devontae Adams are a totally different level than him. Is just a route runner, a game breaker. Nothing against DK. He's the second, third elite tier receiver but he's not those guys those two jamar chase 
Justin Jefferson. That's sort of the cream of the crop right now in the league. And if the Jets were willing to offer 10 for, for one of those guys, I don't think you can get that for DK. So if you're looking, say, like the, the, the Packers package, which I think would be a, probably a fair con- comparison, the Packers got 22 overall and I think 58 overall. If I'm Seattle, like I don't know if I do that because I talked about their team right now. They just don't have core players. And if the Seahawks had a paid quarterback, if Russell was still on the team and was locked in for the next seven years, I might make that trade where you're going to have to pay Russell $50 million coming up. And like Green Bay and Kansas City, they have they just pay Aaron Rodgers. Mahomes' money is about to spike. So they couldn't afford paying these guys. So that's why it, economically and just receivers are going to come to draft every year for the next foreseeable future because of how college football is played today. So I'm okay if you trade DK for the right package in theory. I just don't think that package is there. So I ultimately think he will stay in Seattle. Remember, I said I thought Russell Wilson would not get traded until next year. I thought all signs pointed to a Russell Wilson trade next year. Once I saw that, like, Rogers contract, I'm like, okay, Russell's getting traded in the foreseeable future. It happened two hours late, but that one I did not see coming. With DK, I don't think he'll be traded this year. I think there's just not a fit where – Right now, Seattle doesn't have a lot of paid players. So I know everyone's like, I don't want to pay a receiver. I don't value the receiver position, some people say. But they have room to pay him. And other than Jamal Adams and Tyler Lockett, there's not really a lot of big contracts in the future. And uh, other than Daryl Taylor, there's no one really coming up you're going to have to pay unless you're paying on paying free agents. So if I'm Seattle, I probably, in the context of where their team is, and you know you're probably going to be drafting a quarterback in the next year or two, I probably want to pair him with DK. If you got an offer like some of these offers people are talking about, like two firsts, I would do that in a second. But I don't think that offer exists. I don't think you can get number 10 alone for DK. I think Devontae Adams, who's been the best player at his position in the league, got 22 overall in this draft. So to me, expecting more for DK to me is crazy. Yeah, I, I don't I don't um I don't know what would be the right kind of value. I think with the Jets. The problem is, is and, I, and I think there's some legitimacy to this. If you just trade him for number 10 and get your old pick back, people are going to say, well, you, you essentially, it's part, they're going to add it to the Jamal Adams trade. Oh. So there's the aesthetics of that, which are really bad as well. You almost have to do even better than the Jets That's the, the Jamal Adams trade in order to, to justify it. So oh. you almost like, it makes it harder to do a deal with the Jets. And then from the other team's perspective, you then well, okay, but then are the, are like the Saints going to offer more than the Jets can offer, you know? And there is something, I think there is something to be said for getting like 10 and 38, let's say, because yeah. you, at number nine, you could then, you know, we're talking about, well, you know, they might want to take Derek Stingley or if Evan Neal fell or something like this. Well, you can take one of those guys at nine and you can still trade back. You can kind of do both things. You can mm-hmm. get a player like Derek Stingley and say, okay, we're going to lose DK, but we get him, and we can trade back and do everything we want to do, and you get another pick in round two, high round two pick. It it makes sense. But like you say, are the Jets really going to be willing to offer that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, from the Jets' point of view, they might say, well, DK's younger. They might say that DK is less hassle than Tyreek Hill. Who's you know people say oh DK had a bit of a strop a couple of times on the sideline, yeah well let's look at what Tyreek Hill's done off the field like you know there's yeah. a bit of a difference there, <laughs> and and maybe it's a bit of desperation as well. Well he missed out on Tyreek Hill and we we're not going to get Garrett Wilson. Let's say that Garrett Wilson's the top receiver on their board. We're not going to get him. 
and we don't believe in Chris Olave, let's say, or Jameson Williams and the injury. We, we need somebody who's going to excite the fan base. We need to give Zach Wilson a proven weapon, right? You know, maybe they think we do have to go all in here. Maybe a GM feels like, if I don't get this right this year, I might not have a job next year. And therefore, I need to make sure that Zach Wilson plays well. So, otherwise, I'm going to get fired. So, I'll go and get DK Metcalf. But it, it just feels like if there was a big offer, unless the Jets just kind of think, well, wait this out to the very last minute and yeah. try and get... But why would the Seahawks change? Why would the Seahawks get to the week of the draft and go, yeah, yeah, do you know what? We'll take less. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It feels like as if, you know, we've got to a point now where the best offer should be made by now. There's no real reason to wait till the last week of the draft. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, maybe it will pick up again. I think the fact that AJ Brown and Debo Samuel are also in the same boat probably makes it harder to do a trade because everyone's kind of just in this horrible holding pattern right now. Yeah. If it was just DK Metcalf left, it would perhaps put a bit more pressure on. And I think, don't they all have the same agent? Like, I think they all have yeah. the same agent, so yeah. which is really strange. So, I, I don't know, Jeff. I mean, what what do you think the Seahawks would accept for DK? I think they would do 10 and 38. Okay. I think, as you said, it's a really hard from an optics standpoint just because when you see what Tyreek Hill and Dante Adams got traded for, and this is going to make you facepalm, but the Jamal Adams trade looks so bad. Yeah. When we see what all these like superstars are getting traded for, Khalil Mack went for a second round pick this year. And obviously he was hurt, but like optically, it's really hard to just like end up being like we traded DK Metcalf for Jamal Adams in a second round pick. It's really hard to swallow. So I, yeah, I, I just I don't see a match right now because everyone keeps mentioning Green Bay and KC for DK. They just traded their guys away. Why are they trading the picks they got to just pay another guy twenty five million dollars? To me, that makes no sense. So, does Green I, Bay make any sense at all? Though? I mean, like it's just nothing about what Green Bay has done makes sense. So you no. you give Aaron Rodgers this huge contract, <laughs> and you trade away his not just. I mean, obviously a fantastic weapon, but his only weapon, yeah. you you see the other guys leave, you are now signing Sammy Watkins on a, you know, he's the Austin Blythe of receivers for Green Bay. And then, and, and the, you've kind of got the GM going, doing the comical alley meme, there are no American troops in Baghdad, don't worry everybody, when it gets to the draft, it's going to be really exciting for you. But if they, even if they draft two receivers, Jeff, in the first round, or they trade up to get a receiver, the fans and probably Aaron Rodgers are still going to go, yeah, that's all well and good, but yeah, you know, is that, is, is he any good, this guy, you know, like yeah. is this receiver, is Aaron happy with this? You know, is, is, is he going to be able to have the same chemistry with this guy? Like, you know, if, if the Packers make no sense that, no. you know, the, the, the timing of everything and yet Rodgers seems to be on board with it because why would he have signed the contract otherwise unless he is just so dominated by money yeah and he he must have some awareness of the plan and like a trade for a dk or a, an aj brown or something like that jeff would would you'd sort of think well rogers would be down for that 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 would be that will make sense but you're right why would you not unless devon Adams was just so desperate to play with Derek carr in las vegas i don't yeah. understand why you wouldn't just have paid him and sort this out and rather than paying somebody else even more because if they yeah. trade for DK, they pay him more than Devontae Adams. Will That's get the thing, the market's gone up, yeah. And you remember, John Schneider comes from Green Bay, and some of his mentors 
Ted Thompson and some of the frustrating things that we see with Seahawks are stuff that's coming right from the Green Bay playbook, like how Seattle handles free agency. Like that is Ted Thompson in a nutshell. And some of the weird stuff Green Bay's does with their roster where they, they just, they, they're better at talent evaluation than Schneider's been. But something like the weird, like what they're doing at receiver and it's, it's kind of reminiscent of what Seattle did on the offensive line for all these years. Like they never had a Devontae Adams, but just they had Dwayne Brown and then a bunch of stiffs and it's sort of the same playbook. And we see it with green Bay where like they, they, they took Jordan love in the first round over T Higgins and Michael Pittman. And like that pick of the time seems so bad. And years later, it essentially cost them almost Aaron Rodgers and probably cost them a super bowl. Cause if they had one extra receiver instead of a quarterback, who's not going to play for five years. So it's it's all too familiar because we see a lot of this weird Schneider stuff and those guys were all trained together and they're all trained in the same playbook and there's a lot of weird stuff going on with those that franchise for as successful as they've been. Yeah, I don't think really want to trade DK for like a top fifteen pick. I, I don't think I mean twenty two and twenty eight for example is yeah. you know twenty eight fine you maybe get tiled in the bottom there but like who are you taking at twenty two like who That's who are you. Who's, who comes in at 22 that floats your boat, you know, that really gets you going there? You know, that, that, that pick looks prime trade down material there, Jeff. And then you kind of like get into the kind of range where it's like fraught with danger. If you don't nail that pick having traded DK and then you trade down from 22, you're just leaving yourself wide open. For, yeah, they're, yeah, like you said, that's been their danger zone where they haven't figured out how to master that range of the draft. They've been fine in the second round. They've been fine when they traded up for players they've liked in the second round, but that 20 to 32 range has just been a disaster for them. They have not mastered that. So to ask them to go back in there to me would just be to give up a blue chip player who's got his flaws. He needs to get better as a receiver. He's not perfect, but on a team that just doesn't have a lot of talent an upper echelon talent, and they don't have a lot of money committed. I'm totally fine paying them. I would trade him for the right price because I think, He's a receiver. I think I'd rather get blue chip players on rookie contracts anytime I can. But again, like I had a guy tell me, like I'd rather have the pick spent at left tackle and defensive end than receiver. I'm like, yeah, but in this draft, you say you trade to 22, you're not going to get blue. You're, you're, you might not get a blue chip left tackle or receiver at nine. Yeah. So what does what getting 22 do for you? It just adds another body. When to me, I think they would have an impact in the locker room. I think like Quandre Diggs would. He's been sold an idea, and he even said, "If DK's gone, I'm gone." So, to me, it's just it would completely like devalue the message of the team. It would completely devalue a lot. So, to me, unless you're getting two first round picks, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I think that's a good a good place to end there with that. I, mean, I think that's that's a, exactly the the true nature of it. And and you're right. If you could get and if you could swap him for you know like you say a franchise left tackle then you would do it if you could swap him for a franchise quarterback you would do it if you, you know those kind of players where you, you get the real value there then fine but if you're trading him away for the opportunity to try and move around the board and just take you know as, as, buy as many lottery tickets tickets as possible and he then goes to the green bay packers and wins a super bowl yeah. it's you know and which let's be right is not completely ridiculous is it with with Aaron Rodgers at quarterback uh, yeah it's uh, it doesn't seem very attractive. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to, to have your time and thank you for your very generous hour and a half uh, talking to us about the draft. 